0: Father, we ask that you would meet us here this morning in our brokenness, in our frailness, in our undeserving nature. God, would you, in your kindness, connect with our hearts and our minds. God, would you show us, would you help us see what's actually true when it comes to worship? Would you give us eyes to see that and ears to hear that, a a heart to be soft and transformed into the image and likeness of your Son? We cannot do it on our own. We ask that you would meet us in this time and this space as only you can. We pray it in your son's name. Amen. Well, I, I was born in the late 70s, grew up in the 80s and 90s, or as my teenagers say, you grew up in the late 1900s, <laughs> which is true, but sounds super ancient. And if you grew up in the 90s, uh, especially the early 90s, you've probably seen a poster like this. This is from the magic eye. You can put this up. Anybody remember those in the early 90s that you would see them? And if you're unfamiliar with this, then these things were everywhere in the early 90s. But you would get up close enough to a poster like this, and you would start to blur your eyes. And all of a sudden, if you did the right technique, you could actually see there was a 3D image that would almost show up in the midst of... These dots that just seem random. And if you walk by and you don't slow down enough, you won't see it. Anybody remember doing this? I had friends that, man, they would look at it for half an hour and just be so frustrated they couldn't see it. And then I had friends that, man, they would blur their eyes and they'd get it right away. If you were close enough to this image, you would see, even on my computer, I did it this week, I just kind of blurred my eyes, and there's a shark that shows up in the whole frame of this image. You could do it later after you're done here, right? Like, it's really, really interesting And the more you read the Bible, the more you realize, man, there's something deeper than just on the surface of our life. We go through life a lot of times like this, and we don't look deeply, and we don't slow down enough to go like, what is actually happening in life? And the Bible calls us to slow down and see something deeper. This is all over the Bible. One of my favorite places is in 2 Kings chapter 6. If you're familiar with the Old Testament story, there's this prophet named Elisha, and uh, there's this king of Syria, and he wants to go and he wants to capture Elisha. So he sends a whole army to camp outside of his tent, and Elisha's servant wakes up the next morning and kind of rubs his eyes and goes out and like peeks out the tent and sees like a whole army and panics, appropriately so. (laughs) runs back to Elijah and goes, hey, we, there's an army out here that's going to trap us and maybe take us. And Elijah slowly walks to the edge of the tent and looks out and closes it and goes back to a servant and says, we actually outnumber them. And he's like, that, what do you mean? And Elijah just prays this prayer and says, oh Lord, would you open the eyes of my servant? God graciously answers the request. And so the servant goes back and takes a second look because he's like, what what does he mean we outnumber them? And he opens and he sees a mountain of armies of chariots of fire. God peels back the layers or the curtain to say, this is really what's going on. And there's moments in our life, and really that's the core of Christianity the gospel, that God peels back the truth of who we are to show us himself. There's more than just meets the eye. And as we walk through this book, this last book of the Bible, the Revelation, it's apocalyptic literature. And some of us think apocalyptic just means end times, kind of doomsday, but it's actually Greek, it just means to reveal or uncover, it's where we get the name Revelation. And again, many of us maybe grew up just like looking at those posters in the 90s, maybe you had a bookshelf of the Left Behind series, which was kind of a fictional account of some of the stuff happening in Revelation, which I, I actually don't think was very helpful. It's, it's entertaining reading, uh, but when you really look at what John is trying to do, Revelation, the book of Revelation, is, is not about this kind of decoder book that will tell us when the end times were coming for the future. That's not what's happening in this book as we're going to continue to unfold it. There are future parts of Revelation, but it's about what's going on in the present. And we talked about this last week. We'll continue to put this in front of us. What is the book of Revelation trying to do? What's this apocalyptic language trying to do? It's trying to do this. It's trying to disciple Christians to be discerning, dissonant worshipers and witnesses of Jesus. This is the point of the book of Revelation that uh, in the midst of a Roman culture that did not follow Jesus that these churches found themselves in, we looked at the seven churches last week that the whole letter is addressed to, it's going, you need to learn what it means to be discerning. realize there's more that's going on on the surface and because of that, you need to be dissident. you need to push against the Roman culture. That is not the way of God, right? It's Romans chapter 12, if you know that verse. Like, do not be conformed to the pattern of the world, but be transformed. There's something in us as we follow Jesus that we go, the world wants to take us this way. And we're going to go, that's actually not the way of Jesus. And we want to press into that. And because of that, that allows us to become worshipers, which we're going to see in chapter 4 and chapter 5 today. And it allows us to be witnesses, to tell other people about where to find hope where to find truth. That's the purpose of the book. Again, we're gonna be looking at chapter four and five as John gets a peek behind the curtain of God's throne room, what it actually means to be in his presence. And if you're taking notes today, the big idea of these two chapters is this, is that true worship does several things. It centers, true worship gathers, true worship confronts and comforts, true worship sends us, and true worship allows us to sing. As we look at those things, true worship, again, the the reality of what's happening is John gets face-to-face with the God of the universe is this idea of worship or ascribing ultimate worth to. It centers our life. It gathers all of creation together. It's going to confront us at an individual and a cosmic level while at the same time it's going to comfort us because there is an answer. And because of that, that's going to send us to tell people and that's going to allow us to sing. That's what we're going to see in these two chapters. And here's how we're going to break it down. Um, we're going to read all of chapter 4, and we'll look at, at those first two things, how, how worship, true worship centers us and how it gathers us. And then we'll read all of chapter 5, and we'll look at how true worship confronts and comforts us and sends us and calls us to sing. And really, just to to help us understand and give imagination. That's why I love the kids are in this room, even for this sermon, because they're better at imagination than we are. And what apocalyptic language and literature is trying to do is give you less information and more imagination. Which, again, is hard for us. We're not good at that. We're not good at imagination. And this is what God is calling us to. And so in chapter 4, it's really... um, My daughter is in theater at the local high school, at Deer Valley High School. She's about to play Alice in Alice in Wonderland the first week of November. So if you want to support the local arts, you can go see her. Um, She was getting real embarrassed first service as I was saying that. She was sitting over there, go, stop talking about that. Um, But she got involved because she got involved in stage production as an elective. And if you know anything about theater, part of the stage and, and the framing of the story is, is what we see visually to draw us into the drama of what's happening. Chapter four is the stage setting of the throne room. We're going to see that. And then chapter five is the drama beginning of what it actually means to be in God's presence for John. So hopefully that gives you some understanding as we walk through it together. So this is Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, the entire chapter. Read along with me uh, to yourself if you would. It says this. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once, I was in the Spirit and there, and there before me was a throne of heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat on there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. A rainbow shone around the emerald and circled on the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones. And seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, the seven lamps were blazing, and these were seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, there were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and back, and the first living creature was like a lion. Second was like an ox, and the third was like the face of a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of these four creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. True worship centers us and gathers us in all of creation. I love this image of a concert hall in Japan. Isn't this beautiful? Can you imagine walking into this for a concert? The ambiance of the stage is set. Or any time if you've been to a concert in the round, you see that you have to focus on the people in the middle, in the midst of family service and uh, even some of the things we were trying to think through to do creatively for the kids for Family Sunday, I was like, what if we put um, this platform in the middle and we make everybody in the round? I was like, well, then that makes me Jesus, so we're not going to do that. Like I don't, like, But if everything was in the round, you're focused on one specific thing. And as John opens up into this space, as he's invited in to walk through the door, he sees God at the center on his throne and everything around it. It's centered on God, being on the throne and being holy. I think the thing we need to be aware of this is like what centers our life? What's the thing that's most valuable to you? What's the thing that, that really your heart goes to? Because whatever you love the most will be the center of your life. So we have to ask ourselves that question. We can all say, if we're Christians in here, yeah, God's the center. I love God the most. But then when you look at your reality, is that really true? Or are you letting things creep up into the throne of God where only he belongs? That's what was happening with these churches. They're so influenced by the culture around them, they don't even see it, which is why Jesus comes in chapter two and three and says, don't live this way. You need to turn, you need to repent. Put me back on the throne in my rightful place. So this is hard for us because like, we love all kinds of things, even good things. Your spouse could be the center of your life your kids could be the center of your life your business could be the center your school your phone could be the center of your life and those are bad gods they just won't serve you the way that god can serve you and so the question for us is to go like how do we get back to god being the center Like what's a good evaluation even for us to go like, man, if I lost that thing, if I lost that person, I don't know how I would function. We have to go, does that mean that person's at the center or is God at the center? So to illustrate this, I I need some help. I need a volunteer from a younger person in the audience. Let me explain, Daniel, first, before you throw your hand up in eagerness. I appreciate the the vulnerability to do that. I need somebody that knows what a monkey sounds like and looks like and acts like. Do you still want to do that, Daniel? Okay, come on, Daniel. Come on, let's go. Let's go. Okay. Yeah, give it up for Daniel. Do may. Right over here, Daniel. Okay. I don't know how many of you, you included Daniel, have ever seen how monkeys get captured in the jungle. Anybody know this, what a monkey trap looks like, even to this day, how they use it? It's a very humane way to capture an animal. So, I need your best monkey right now. Like, if you're a monkey, what would you do? What would you sound like? What would, what would you look like, Daniel? I don't know. You do. I believe in you. You can do it. What's a monkey sound like? Ooh, 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 ooh. I'm not sure that's actually what they sound like. Okay. Very accurate for a dumé. What, what would they sound like? Just give me something. You got anything? No. Okay. Do you want to stay up here and help me, or should we pick somebody else to help us with it? Anybody else? Anybody else? You stay up here. Stay up here. Yes, come on up. Come on up. Come on up, Kinsley. Come on up. I need you to be here to make sure she's being an accurate monkey. If she doesn't throw the flag, blow the whistle, okay? Okay, good. You can do that. You can handle that. Hi. Hello. You ready? Okay. What does a monkey sound like? Oh. <laughs> that okay. We're very good. Very good. Okay. Okay. So here's how they trap a monkey. So stand on that corner over there. What they will do is they will fashion like a, uh, it, not Tupperware from Walmart, but they'll get some, some thing where they'll put something the monkey desires inside, and then they'll hide it behind a bush or a tree or a wall, and the monkey is walking along doing the monkey things. Yes, very good. And then all of a sudden it sees something it desires. Yes, what, how would a monkey get excited about that? Because it's food. Well, the monkeys don't talk in English. Like, how would a monkey get excited about that? Oh. Yes, yeah, yeah, there we go. That's what we're talking about. Okay, okay. So the monkey would reach in to get the treasure, and what would happen if the monkey would try and pull it out? They get stuck. They get stuck. Okay? So here's the deal. The monkey is so fixated on the thing inside the trap that what happens, keep your hand in there, hold on to it. Let's imagine Daniel is the hunter. Okay. The hunter would walk right up to the monkey. The monkey would even see the hunter. But the monkey is so fixated on this, the monkey won't let go. And then it gets trapped. You can take your arm out now. Well done. Give them a round of applause for our Thespians. Thank you, guys. Good work. Isn't that an interesting illustration of sometimes the thing we grab on our heart? Right? We go after these things that we think will give us life, that promise us life, and then we get stuck holding on to them so much so that we won't even let go even when we know we're going to be trapped. This is what the Bible calls idolatry. When you begin to worship anything other than God at the center, it will trap you, it will enslave you, and it will continue to promise, and it will continue to fail you. And so we need to ask ourselves, like, how do we move from um, being monkeys that are holding on to things that are so important to us to letting go? And you know what? You cannot let go on your own. It's impossible. And so we'll look at what it means to center God in the middle so we continue to let go of those things and let God be who he needs to be. I love this quote from Eugene Peterson. He says, by centering attention on God at the center... All things become centered. It doesn't mean all things are perfect because we live in a broken world. That's not true. But you start to live into your humanity the way you were meant to live in because you're only meant to worship God, not those other things we grab for. So the first point is that worship, true worship centers us. The second is that it gathers. Look at this picture of a concert. We don't know. Maybe it's Taylor Swift. I don't know. It looks unbelievable, And so when you love something, whether it's a game played with a pigskin or it's somebody singing, man, it gathers people around, right? To give allegiance to that thing or that person or that song or that game. And as we look in the text in chapter 4, we see that worship gathers. What does worship gather? A couple of things. Worship gathers beauty. We see God on the throne as beautiful. We also see this rainbow-like emerald circled around him. There's beauty that true worship gathers together. True worship gathers people or angels. We see these thrones with these 24 elders, and scholars are debated whether they think, well, some, some believe that it's like the the, uh, the nations of Israel, the twelve nations of Israel and the twelve apostles, the full people of God. Some people think these were angels. We don't know. We know they're called elders, we know they're dressed in white, and they are there to worship God at the center. True worship gathers beauty, gathers people, it gathers power. We see lightning and thunder. We see powerful things in the midst of the presence of God. Not only that, we see it gathering the spirit. These lamps that are ablaze, which represents God's perfect spirit, and um, the churches that are sent out all over the world are represented in the gathering of the worshipping of God. We see creation. And all earthly power, these images of lions and ox and eagles and men, the things that the Roman culture would worship or use as examples of worship to say these are powerful, we're going to bend our knee to these things. And in this scene, true worship, those things are bowing to God. And ultimately, that will happen one day. We see that God's uh, in, the, in the midst of gathering. He is over all of creation, this idea of the sea being still like glass. For The people that would first read this, the sea was terrifying to them. And if you know the language of the Old Testament, like, it was ter- terrifying. Like, the sea was something scary. It was like representing death. We'll see at the end of Revelation, like, the sea is no more. That doesn't mean in the new creation there's no water or beaches. That would be terrible. But it means evil is now in check. The sea is still in this throne room before a holy and living God. We see gathered in the midst of this diversity. You don't see it in chapter four, but you see it in chapter five, chapter six, that uh, people from all nations, tribes, tongues are coming to worship God collectively. All of humanity is there gathered together. And we see humility gathered together. Of all those things we just listed are all doing what? They're all bending their knee to the king, to God. True worship only centers us and should center us, but true worship gathers us together in the midst of worshiping the one true king. So that's the stage is set. Now let's pick up the drama in chapter 5, starting in verse 1. John says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside. And I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll and look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep, see. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and elders. And the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And when And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the four elders fell down before the lamb. Each one of them had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation." You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and the sea, and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne, and to the lamb, to be praised in honor, glory, and power, forever and ever, the four creatures said, amen, and the elders fell down, and worshipped. Not only would you get a picture in chapter 4 that true worship leads to centering and it leads to gathering, but as we see in chapter 5, true worship leads, uh, or confronts and comforts and sends us and calls us to sing. True worship confronts us. John walks into this scene and he sees this scroll that has all the answers. Everything that could be laid out to to make what's wrong right. And he goes, nobody can open it. Nobody can see in it. There's these seven seals that nobody, no matter what we can do, can get to it. And he starts to weep. And regardless of what you believe about Jesus in this room, you know that this world is messed up. You know that it is broken. And what true worship does is it confronts us to not have the answer. We pursue these things. We chase these things. We think, if we get this right, it'll fix it. Or if we get that right, it'll fix it. And we keep going like, "Ah, no, it's not fixed. And, And I still feel incomplete at the end of the day. You will feel incomplete until you're dead unless you give your life to Jesus. He's the only one that can be the answer for that. And so true worship is confrontational because of what the Bible calls sin. Because God is perfect in his holiness and we are not. And we're confronted with that in true worship. John is confronted with the evil of the world, which we'll start to see get unpacked in the chapters in the future of this book. And he's undone. He's weeping. He's going like, "There's nothing I can do. What can I do? There's nothing that will stop the pain. There's nothing that will answer this." And in the midst of that confrontation, he gets comfort, because one of the elders comes to him and says, "There is hope." I know you think it's hopeless, you, you, you feel like there's nowhere to go, there's actually an answer to the problem, and it's found in this line of Judah. I love the language here, if you look at your Bible, again, like, uh, like um, John is undone with weeping, he he's, doesn't know what to do, because there is no answer, and in the midst of that, the, the elder doesn't come along and go, like, just... Like, we hear him say, stop crying. It's not like, stop, stop crying. Like, why are you, a baby? Like, he should be undone with his emotion, but what he's doing, he's not invalidating his pain. He's giving John a new perspective. He's going, even in the midst of your pain, there's actually an answer. And when you turn and you see, or some of your translations say, behold, stop weeping, behold, behold our God. we just saying that, that like when you get your uh, eyes off your circumstances and you look at the person of Jesus and what he has done for you, actually begin to have hope. One of our pastors, his name is Marcus, and he's at Redemption Tucson down south. And Marcus grew up in Libya, Africa during the war. Some of you guys have heard Mar- Marcus has preached here before, and he has an unbelievable story. Um, his father was murdered. His mother was murdered in the midst of his war. He had an older sister that knew Jesus, and his older sister was constantly telling Marcus about Jesus. And when we were in Preaching Collective a week and a half ago talking about this text and the specific idea of, like, sometimes we're suffering, and we don't want to invalidate the pain and the hurt, but we want to help shift our perspective to seeing Jesus. In the midst of, he told us this story when he was 11. He's 11 and the soldiers come in and there's bullets flying in his home, breaking glass. His sister grabs his hand and they start running away for safety. In the midst of his running away, his shoe falls off and he goes back for his shoe and his sister grabs his hand he said, this is what she said to me all the time, even before this moment. And this is what she said in this moment. She goes, Marcus, even if you die." it's going to be okay. Even if you die, it's going to be okay. She's not invalidating the pain. She's not invalidating the reality. She's trying to shift his perspective to go, because we have Jesus one day, none of this will happen. And for so some of us, we need to be confronted with our sin and then we need to be comforted to go like, listen, sin is rampant, it's cosmic. The effects we all feel all the time, every day, could we shift our perspective of like, this is the worst thing and go like, no, even if we die, it's gonna be okay. And we can only say that if we've given our life to Jesus. If you surrender to this lamb, that you can have that hope. And we see what true worship does. It it confronts and it comforts in the midst of what John sees and what he hears. And again, we'll unpack this even at another level because John is doing something here. Even in his technique of communication, he does what? He says he hears the elder say, it's the Lion of Judah. And he turns and he sees a slain lamb. And we'll see he picks up that idea of what hearing is causes our imagination versus seeing, causes a communal reaction in all of us. And again, the people of the time would know what the slain lamb represented, the Passover lamb, the lamb of atonement, the way that we got right with God again. And he sees it as Jesus for all time. And it gives us comfort. Not only does true worship give us confrontation with our sin and the sin of the world. It also comforts us because we do have a hope in Jesus that these things that we seek for our comfort won't be enough until we center them on the person of Jesus. But true worship also sends us as ambassadors. You look at verse 10 there. It says, you have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God. And again, a priest was somebody that represented God to the people and represented the people to God. And now because of what Jesus has done, and because if we've given our life to him, now there's what's called a priesthood of believers. We're all called to be light in a dark place to share about who Jesus is and what he has done for us. True worship sends us missionally. And then the last one, true worship sings. You can't look at these two chapters and not see the songs just piled upon pile upon pile of songs that we just erupt in singing, and we just tell people what we love, don't we? If you have a grandkid or a job you're excited about, or you you can watch a show or a movie, and you're telling 10 people. If it really affects you and you love it, you're, you're telling other people. And so singing is a natural byproduct of really understanding that we found our hope. We don't have to look for these other things anymore. These things we've been chasing, these things we've been grabbing, these monkey traps, we actually can let go because Jesus has paid the price for us. And because of that, that causes us to sing. And so the question for us of why we come into this room every Sunday and sing, again, we've talked about this multiple times, it's really odd and off-putting. Unless you're at a concert or unless you're at some type of sporting event, when do you get around other people and just sing? But the hope is if you're at a concert and everybody starts singing, Because that song has done something to you, or that artist you connect with in a unique way, and it just pours out of you, and everybody sings at the same time. The same is true when we walk into this room. Whether you like the music or don't like the music, it's less about that. It's more about what is the message, and what are the words saying? And are you engaging the spirit in the midst of your imagination to go, God, I was lost I am lost today on the way here. I did plenty of things to put me out of bounds with your perfection. But you know what? I look at the lamb and I see there's a price that's been paid. And I can lean into that. And I can trust you for that. That's why we sing every single week. Because you're going to walk out of these doors. And you're going to be influenced by the culture around us to tell her, keep grabbing the orange. That's what's going to save you. And it's a trap. And so we come into this space. To go, we're going to follow the lamb. We're not going to follow the dragon. We're going to bend our knee to Jesus. And something, when we sing, something changes to believe that truth in and through us. So that's what we're going to do as we respond. Again, true worship, it centers, it gathers, it confronts, comforts, it sends, and it sings. And it's just, I think, a good um, opportunity for us to go, man, where am I not centered Where have I let the influences of my world creep into the number one space in my heart and my life and I need to repent and put Jesus back on the throne where he rightly belongs? Where have I not been a participation of gathering with other people to, to believe what the truth is when we're face to face with God? Where do I need to be confronted in my own sin? I've got an area of my life that I've just kind of ignored and just like, ah, that's not a big deal. And God's spirit is going, it's a big deal. You need to change that. And then where do you get comfort to go? It's not about you doing it, but it's about what Jesus has done for you. And then he changes you from the inside out. Where do you need to be sent in the midst of true worship? And then where do you need to sing? Even in this room, if you feel like, man, I'm not somebody that sings in this room. I just kind of stand there and just kind of listen to the words. And, and maybe you're just not musically inclined. This is not a judgment. But look, would you pray and ask God to give you an imagination for what the words you're singing actually mean? And would you trust him in that? It takes humility to do that. But he's the only one that should occupy our throne. Let's pray together. Father, thanks for your goodness to us as we get just a small vision of what it means to be in your presence Would you help us live that reality out? Would you help us not walk by the magic eye image and just keep going, but slow down enough to understand that you are the only one that gives us life to not reach inside the monkey trap and go after things that are shiny, that the culture would say that's where you find life, but that we would go after you. And you would meet us. So we ask that you would do that this morning in and through us. We pray in your name, amen. We're gonna spend some time responding. If you're new with us, we respond every week in a couple of different ways. We're gonna sing um, for all the reasons we just listed and what we saw. We want this to be an opportunity for you to pray. We just read in the text that the prayers of God's people are like incense to him. Like when you go into that room, whether you go into that room or you pray in your seat, there's something happening below the surface. And the world will go, now like you're just talking to nowhere. You're talking to the ceiling. But we go, now like actually prayer forms us. It forms me as a more dependent person. So we want to give you an opportunity to pray, and then we want to take communion. We literally want this to be the center of our time together. That's why it's in the middle of the room. To come down and go, like, I I don't want to fall over those idolatries, and I don't want to worship those things, and I've been doing that. God, would you help put yourself back on the throne where you belong and help me not grab those things? Or if I'm grabbing those things... Would you release it in me? Would you take it away? Would you kill it? Because I can't do it anymore. And as we see Jesus killed on the cross, we take a piece of bread, which represents his body given to us, and we dip it in the juice, which represents his blood, shed for us to remind ourselves that he is the center of our life. So we're going to do that. We would invite you, if you are a Christian, if you follow Jesus to partake In the Lord's Supper with us this morning, you'll just walk down. We kind of do it aisle by aisle and you can take a piece of bread. It'll be handed to you. Just hold your hands with a posture of humility and receiving and then you can dip it in the juice. You can take it here, back at your seat in the prayer space. There's a gluten-free option here in the middle if you have a need for that. And normally what we do is there's some quiet time and then uh, just like we give instructions to new people like I just did for you, now there's an invitation to, to move towards the elements and to worship God. Uh, this morning, we're going to watch a video as a cue to move. And so instead of Stephen reading the, the invitation, we're going to watch a, a two-minute video. If you've been in the rhythms course at all, you've seen this video. We talk about it when we talk about why we sing. It's a sermon uh, clip from John Piper from 1985, and he is preaching on 2 Chronicles chapter 20. And so in a minute, it's going to play, watch it, and then As it finishes, that'll be our cue to move towards the elements to remind ourselves what true worship is found in the body and the blood of Jesus. Let's watch this.
1: Jehoshaphat aims to conquer Moab with a choir. God had said, the battle is mine to fight. And Jehoshaphat says, well, let's put the choir at the front verse 21 and when he had taken counsel with the people he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy array as they went before the army and say give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever in other words shouts of victory before the battle commences because God had promised it. I think the writer of this book wants us to learn from verse 22, even though victory belongs to God, the singing of the choir is the occasion for the victory. Singing is not merely a response to grace. Singing is a means of grace. Singing is power. It comes and does something. Jehoshaphat sang with the choir, and Moab and Ammon and Seir killed themselves. And when Paul and Silas sang, it says, God shook the prison. Surely the lesson is: there is power when the people of God sing. Jim Elliot, you remember? January 8, 1956, Jim Elliot, Nate Saint, and three others. They were there at the river waiting to see whether the Alcas would come out, the Indians to whom they were going to minister. The last word that the headquarters received from them, according to Elizabeth Elliot in her book, The Shadow of the Almighty, was that they sang a hymn before they crossed over. What they sang was this. We go in faith our own great weakness feeling, needing more each day thy grace to know. Yet from our hearts a song of triumph pealing. We rest on thee and in thy name we go. And they all got killed before 4.30 in the afternoon. And God protected them. protected them from unbelief, from cowardice, from fear, from going home and buying a house in the suburbs and saying somebody else can reach the Alka's. There was victory on that afternoon. It's reverberated over the last 30 years and it'll continue on into eternity. There are two weapons that we have to fight Satan with in worship. The Word of God and song. I beseech you, give heed to the Word and sing with all